I'm Cedar Lewison, and you're about to listen to one of the stories from my book, The First 14,439 Words. All the stories are written by me, and they're written in the spirit of text as artwork. I work as an artist and writer and curator, and I've written a lot of different short stories, almost as if the stories are sculptures. I'm interested in the idea of writing by visual artists and novels by visual artists and all these stories are written in that way so although the stories are narrative they're also kind of like artworks in a way they're often written in response to a location or in response to a feeling or emotion but i kind of see them as sculptures and i'm really happy to have other people that i don't know read the stories because in a way that brings them to life and turns the sculptures into real things like sound artworks. So they're a bit quirky. I hope you enjoy them and I hope you'll come back and listen to them next time. Black Honey. King's Cross, Tuesday, waiting for the train to leave. I found a good quiet spot. The 1308 Virgin train to York all settled in. I noticed two reserve tickets on the seat in front of me. Over the tannoy, various announcements are announced. Staring out of the window at Platform 5, I send a quick email to the professor I'm due to meet. This whole meet-up is a bit of a mystery. A set of tickets posted to my office with a scrawled, virtually incomprehensible note. Back on the train, an old couple get on and start chatting away in their East Midlands accent. They have sandwiches from M&S. I'm enjoying listening in on their passive-aggressive chit-chat when I get a text from the professor. He wants to know if I'm on the train and why I'm not at the seat he booked for me. I text back and say I grabbed the first free seat I saw. A minute or so later he joins me in Coach F. I hardly notice the train leaving the station and we are on our way to Grantham. The professor is certainly a natty dresser, a tall, thin man. He's wearing a houndstooth checked suit, Doc Martin brogues, and a pork pie hat. Not what you'd expect from one of the UK's leading theoretical physicists. Cutting through all pleasantries, the professor says, things started to seem strange around the village around eight months ago. He then produces a notebook that lists the dates and places of some of these bizarre activities. And they certainly do seem strange. Cars have changed color overnight. People have gone missing for days, only to return with no memory of being away. And the list of weird behavior by local livestock could have its own notebook. He starts to give me examples of animal and bird behavior I can hardly believe. Sheep walking through fields in geometric formations, bird song that sounds like dogs barking, and the bees producing jet black honey, which apparently tastes amazing. So far the villagers have managed somehow to keep all these strange occurrences to themselves as they often do in rural communities. How long that can last is anyone's guess. We arrive at Grantham train station. We walk outside through a slightly dank, dark tunnel to the professor's car. Halfway through the tunnel, I notice some very amateurish graffiti. For some reason, it stops me momentarily. The graffiti is simply the outline of a large triangle sprayed on the wall. And in messy handwriting style, the words, 
we have landed March 1990. We get into the professor's beaten up old Citroen and make the 20 minute drive from Grantham to Wellingore. On the way, he tells me about dropping out of school in London in the 70s and how he was introduced to radical mathematics in various anarchist squats in South East London around the time. This has sparked an interest in more hardcore physics and eventually a place at Leicester University. It was through an old South London contact that he found me. He stops mid-sentence to point out the house where Margaret Thatcher was born. I spend the rest of the journey looking out of the car window at the flat Lincolnshire landscape as it passes me by. Field after field with the odd pile on line and the occasional wind turbine. The professor and his wife live in a large converted Methodist chapel just off Blacksmith Lane. In the car, he tells me about the conversion project and how he found the derelict building with the help of Dalton's Weekly. The building had holes in the roof and no floor when he'd taken it on. It's now a very beautiful modern space, white and airy like a contemporary art gallery with distinctive purple beams along the ceiling. Standing in the kitchen, the professor offers me a glass of Belvedere elderflower juice. Very refreshing. Grantham's own, he says. I look around the room and notice a number of stuffed animals on the walls in vitrines. I pay them no mind and say goodnight. I'm staying in the reading room adjacent to the main church building. It's also part of the chapel conversion. A very big studio style room that still feels slightly churchy. There is a little kitchen area and what looks like some leftovers from the previous guest. Some baked beans in a tin, half a box of Dorset muesli, some pasta, tea, coffee, and basically enough to make it through the night if necessary. I look in the small fridge that is empty except for a pot of strawberry jam and some truly irresistible fair trade chocolate and a bottle of water. I take a shower. In the shower, there is some lush shower gel. I don't even consider not using it. As I'm drying up, I see a huge flying bug land on my laptop that is sitting open on the table. The flying bug is literally as big as a small bird. I'm terrified at the sight of the thing. It sits on the laptop, making a loud hissing noise. It's seemingly fascinated by the light of the screen. It rubs its long, alien-like legs together and flies off out of the open window into the darkness. I quickly close the window behind the disgusting creature. I go back to the computer and see that it has been covered in a thick layer of bright pink slime. I have to mix up washing liquid with warm water to wipe the slime away. Still slightly freaked out by the giant bug, I decide it's time to get some sleep. I lie in bed. My mind is racing away and the small single bed is hard and uncomfortable. It takes an age but eventually I drift off. I don't sleep deeply however and wake up several times in the night. I'm too hot. Too many thoughts racing in my mind. Eventually, I have to get out of bed. I go to the fridge and take a gulp of water from a bottle of Evian. I put some clothes on and open the door into the crisp night. The road is completely empty, not a soul in sight and deadly silent. There are some lights on the occasional house, but the village appears to be sleeping. The pitch black night sky above is sharp and clear. I look up and focus on a particular star. I don't know why, but the Alpha Eurasi Majoris transfixes me. 123 light years away, it's strange to think that I might only be looking at the echoes of an explosion that took place in 1892. The thought of this makes me want to go back to bed. Then in a moment, the sky turns red, then green, then bright, bright white. I almost feel as if I'm dreaming. I look back up at the sky, but it's now pitch black again, filled only with tiny dots of starlight. 
The sound of wind smashing against the building I'm sleeping in wakes me in the morning. I also hear the sound of what I guess must be birds, but they don't sound like any bird I've ever heard before. It's a wailing noise, echoing along, slightly haunting, nearer to a deep scream than a bird song. I quickly become accustomed to this morbid tone in the air. That and the wind provide my soundtrack while I walk into the nearby village of Knavebury for supplies. I pop into a butcher's called Oddlings and pick up some vegetables and a sirloin steak. I then walk a bit further down the grass-lined village high street to a little supermarket. I have a quick scout around and decide on some yoghurt and honey. I remember the professor mentioning on the train about the amazing black honey that had suddenly started to be produced by local bees. I asked the shop attendant if they stopped the black honey. The shop assistant looks awkwardly at her feet and says she has not heard of such a product. I pay for my items and leave the shop. Outside, a woman dressed in tweed comes up to me and grabs my arm. Young man, she says, looking up and down at the road as if she does not want to be seen talking to me. She then goes on to explain that if I want some of the black honey, I'll need to visit a certain address and ask for the special bee stuff. I make a note of the address and thank the woman for the inside information. She winks at me and strides away. I fold the address up, put it into my pocket and plan to investigate further. Before heading back, I decide to stop off at a bookshop that also does tea. Inside, I spend some time perusing the shelves. I pick up a book on crime and murder in Lincolnshire and another on historic images of Nottingham. I order a pot of tea, take a seat and start flicking through the books. As I'm gazing at the images of Nottingham beauty queens and a famous local clown called Peter Brown, a man who looks to be in his 60s asks me if he can sit at my table. I say fine. He's wearing a distinctive blue sweater with two owls on it, as well as a Countryside Alliance badge. Joseph introduces himself and says he's also interested in local history and could not help noticing the books I'm reading. He starts to tell me about the history of the Knights Templar in Lincoln and says many of the Knights are buried in the churches in the surrounding villages. He then starts talking about ancient holy builders and how Lincolnshire has been a meeting point for high-powered societies for millennia. There are royal bloodlines linking Lincoln to a global network of historic groups who have much influence around the world, he tells me. These groups have always been at the forefront of military techniques and weaponry, and the tradition continues to this day. Future wars and weapons of death are being planned and constructed not three miles from where we are sitting. I sit my old grey. Joseph has brilliant white hair and wide, piercing brown eyes that seem to expand as he is talking to me. I managed to break the flow of information coming from him just long enough to ask what he does for a living. I run a funeral parlour, he tells me. This is where his interest in looking at gravestones comes from. He goes on to say that Wellingore and Newbury have very strong ley lines, unknown to many who study the English landscape, but a direct alignment between the villages and Lincoln Cathedral can be traced by those who know how. Lincoln Cathedral then links up with other significant ancient typographic locations around the country, such as Salisbury and Bazaarly, Bromley in Kent. Bromley, I ask. Birthplace of time travel and war of the worlds, says Joseph. I finish my tea and decide it's time to get back to the professor. I thank Joseph for the conversation and start to leave the bookshop. Very quietly, he leans into my ear and whispers, Wear earplugs at night and stay away from the black honey. I get back to the chapel and the professor is there, making some notes on a whiteboard.
I ask him what he's doing and he mentions something about condensed matter. The whiteboard simply appears to be covered in abstract squiggles to me, however. The professor says he has arranged a meeting with some of his colleagues who live nearby. He says he thinks it's important that I speak to them. Fifteen minutes later, we drive over to Waddington. On the way, I mention my conversation with Joseph. The professor is not surprised by any of the revelations. In fact, he mentions that there is an RAF military base near to where we are going. He says the base is quite controversial, not least because they are known as a UK launching pad for drones and other surveillance equipment. He asks if I would like to see the site. I say yes, and we make a quick detour to have a look at what is basically a large yellow fence with a couple of soldiers guarding it. I decide to take a quick photograph and jump back in the car, and we drive off. Alistair and Roslyn are also theoretical physicists. They also live in a converted Methodist chapel, and it is also full of stuffed animals. Stuffed cats, to be precise. A bit creepy. There are also about five living cats walking around the place. Roslyn offers me a drink of Belvedere elderflower juice with water, which I accept. I'm starting to get a taste for the stuff. She does not waste time before saying, we are under psychic attack from drones. Not actual drones, Alistair cuts in. Strictly speaking, we are dealing with remotely piloted aircraft, RPAs. Nobody cares less what acronym you give them. They are machines for killing and spying on people around the world and we are fairly sure the drones coming out of RAF Waddington are sending out some type of radio waves that are responsible for making the local people and local animals go crazy. Roslyn goes on to explain how she believes the British military are testing mind control techniques that induce hallucinatory-like effects on villagers in the Lincoln area. We are certain they are using local villages for their tests. She said at first the effects could be passed off as coincidence but protesters at RAF Waddington Peace Camp had informed her of other similar cases around the world. Small communities being used as guinea pigs for new forms of covert operation, often without the victims ever knowing. There are baddies out there, Alistair says point blank. Drones are the new landmines. They are indiscriminate weapons of war that kill more civilians than they do legitimate targets. Add to this the hallucinogenic radio waves they are developing and the prospects are disastrous. Just think about it. Mass mind control in the UK or anywhere in the world operated by a hormonal 20-year-old via an app in some government-funded military facility. Alistair and Roslyn then go on to show me photographic documentation of the drones, or RPAs, hovering above the village. They also play me sound recordings that they have taken in the last few months from their back garden. The recordings sound very much like the weird bird song I heard this morning. Things are starting to add up, but to what? I wasn't sure. We left Waddington and the professor headed home. I decided to stop at the Red Marquee, the local pub in Wellingall. Inside the local pub, there is a darts game going on. It's a local team versing a visiting side from Moscow. Quite a turn up for the books to find Wellingall's local boozer filled with vodka downing Russians. I order a Glen Phillip. I look at the barmaid. Surrounded by help for heroes, triangular Union Jack plastic flags, she seems to be a million miles away. All the locals in the pub basically look as if they are dressed up as the Wu-Tang Clan. Baggy jeans and rugby tops. Timberland boots. Neither the Russian or the British dart players could be described as a conventionally beautiful group of men. Unique, maybe. The Russians, however, have brought with them a large number of very glamorous and scantily clad young women who seem to be very happy to drape themselves over their British hosts. The darts teams, both local and visitors, 
all ordered pizza and chips, and to the Russians' great amusement, garlic bread with cheese. One of the local players says, God said, let there be garlic bread. And Beelzebub said, put cheese on it. One of the local players offers me garlic bread with cheese on it. The atmosphere in the bar is boisterous. The Russian dance players put Tom Jones onto the digital jukebox and all start singing along to the classic hit, Delilah, the British counterparts join in. One of the Brits, the one who offered me the garlic bread, looks over to me and mouths the words, sorry. But I think to myself, how good Tom Jones is. Yes, he may have done the odd cheese bag gig or two, but it can never detract from the fact that Tom Jones is quality. I tip my hat to Tom Jones. I overhear one of the British dance players make a joke. First he says he wants to hear some Simon and Garfunkel. Then he says, my father's brother lost both of his legs in the war. We called him Uncle Half-Uncle. I leave the pub around 11.45 and head back to the reading room studio. Inside, I'm just about to turn on my computer when I hear a knock on the door. I open it and see two men dressed in dark grey suits. Excuse us, sir, but we would like to ask you some questions. Would you mind coming with us? My heart skips a beat. This is not a question, it's an order. They wave some sort of official badge, say they're from the UK anti-terrorism squad and bundle me into the back of an unmarked car. At the station, I'm asked the same questions over and over again. The police constantly saying that I'm not under arrest and that they are just wanting to clear up some of their inquiries. They want to know why I was taking photographs at the RAF base and what exactly I'm doing in Wellingor. I spend around two hours in the small interview room before finally they release me saying no further action will be taken. As I leave the station, one of the officers says to me, this is about a humane way to carry out war. The next morning, I wake up early to get the train back to London. The strange bird song is there again. I take a walk along Blacksmith Lane to Pingle Lane and then up to the end of Eggshell Alley and ring the doorbell of a new build looking house. A man in his forties with a long beard answers. He's wearing a red silk gown and some type of Egyptian looking hat and a five pointed gold star on it. Can I have some of the special bee stuff? I ask. Hi, this is Cedar. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the short story. If you'd like to find out any more information about me and my work, you can visit my website, cedarlewison.com. I'm also on Insta. So Cedar is C-E-D-A-R. Lewison is L-E-W-I-S-O-H-N. Visit the website, check out Insta, and thanks again for listening, and bye for now.